0: today on Ag News Daily. Uh, it packs about three to five acres of sort of land equivalent into a shipping container and we grow our produce with 99% less water than traditional agriculture, 98% less land than traditional agriculture, no chemicals whatsoever,
1: and almost no food miles. Welcome to... A Tuesday edition of the Ag News Daily podcast. This is Tanner Winterhoff co-hosting today alongside Cassidy Zirkel. How's Cassidy doing this morning?
2: I'm doing great, Tanner. Always happy to be on with you.
1: Absolutely, this is might become the new norm if we keep knocking it out of the park like this.
2: Yeah, I think Delaney just has realized that we're the dream team, and she's going to step back and let us do it.
1: <laughs> we're we're only putting words in her mouth. No big deal.
2: <laughs> what kind of news do you have this morning, Tanner?
1: Well, first I'll do a a bird's eye view, I shouldn't even say bird's eye view, a driver's seat view of central Iowa. So this last weekend we've kind of been hit with some rainstorms, Uh, that is a headline, there's more severe weather in the forecast for the Corn Belt. But as I drove here about 40 miles in central Iowa, a portion of the state got two to four inches, in some places six inches of rain over the weekend, and from the road, there is quite a bit of young crops that are going to need replanted if we ever dry out. There's been a significant amount of washing. Obviously, uh, that erosion has caused you know a big issue to standability up here. But uh, overall, usually rain, the rain is welcomed. But I would say, uh, based upon my drive today, the extended planting season in our area has probably been extended one more time.
2: Yeah, that is always a bummer to see that and those young crops having to be replanted. I know farmers are frustrated as it goes already, so I'm sure they're not happy about that.
1: Yeah, when you look at the planting progress report, overall, it seems like, uh, Cassidy, we are back to about normal. So the planting progress report that came out on June 6th, Monday, stated that nationwide the corn planting progress is at 94%. As of Sunday, June 5th, that's eight percentage points increased from the previous week, which now puts us 2% ahead of the five-year average. North Dakota has uh, got 81% planted, up from 56%. So congratulations to those North Dakota farmers. They really put the work in last week. Minnesota's at 93%. That was up from 82%. Pennsylvania, not known for a lot of corn production, is now the dragging slowest process at 79% planted for corn. The first crop conditions report also came out at the same time, saying 73% of the corn was rated at good to excellent, near the same rating of last year, and at the higher end of the 12 year range, which has been 63 to 79%. So as stated, what I just drove by, it'll be interesting to see what the crop conditions report looks like next week for corn. But when we flip to the soybean side, planting progress is at 78% of the nationwide average that's again 12 or nationwide crop is planted that's 12 percentage points above last week and is now only one percentage week behind the five-year average of 79%. Crop development wise 79% of the winter wheat crop has headed out nationwide and 5% of the winter wheat has been harvested as of Sunday ahead of the five-year average, which is 2%. So a lot of positives there in the planting progress report for progress. But I would say when we hit markets here at the end of our segment, we'll see that it dictated a downturn this morning.
2: Yes, sir. Well, that is positive news for all of those farmers who have put in so much work over the past few weeks because we know that that progress report has gone up exponentially in the past two or three weeks. But I will tell you, Tanner, something that is not going up is our pork export numbers. We're down 17% from this time in 21. And by, that's by value and 20% by volume. So that was all for the first quarter of 2022. I know that pork producers are really hoping to get those export numbers back up because that's a, a huge downturn in their profitability.
1: Yeah, it is. And I'm sure that's going to be discussed a lot. The World Pork Expo is taking place this week in Iowa. So a lot of the brightest and latest, brightest minds and latest technology is there to meet up and show what happens for advancements. Uh, but ultimately, a lot of that can be wasted news if we don't have good exports. I tell you what, though, when we switch to the cattle industry, there's been a study done on traceability and trust. So we all know that that's been a big thing. Oh, a long A long time coming since, you know, obviously mad cow disease, uh, for lack of of better terms, hit many years ago. But the traceability in cattle business is a lot like that barbed wire fence between you and the neighbors. Everybody knows that you want one or at least want a good one, but nobody wants to pay for all of it themselves. So it's estimated now that the cow-calf producers... If this traceability program goes into full force, we'll be responsible for 84.3% of the total industry costs. And this article goes on, Cassidy, to talk about how traceability has to start at the beginning, which is why these cow calf guys may be penalized. And a lot of sympathies in here for the, the smaller cow calf producers, you know, the 50 head to 100 head, because they don't have the ability to spread the potential cost of this traceability program out over a large herd. So the call now is for legislatures to put in a cost-sharing program that packers and feeders can share in that as well. So they're talking about electronic ID tags. I know there's a lot of producers out there already doing that on scale, but if you wanted the entire cattle sector to take this on, the cow-calf sector will bear a lot of that initial cost. So 84% was the prediction. Backgrounders then had five percent, sale barns four point two percent, feedlots another six, and packers less than one percent. And I know that's not going to be favorable news to a lot of our listeners who are already battling what they think packers margins are too high.
2: Yeah, sir, that's for sure. Especially, there's been a lot of rules and regulations really hurting on the little guys in the cattle industry lately with the regulations for prescriptions for antibiotics and this new traceability law. So it seems like our smaller producers are really getting hit hard this But sticking on the cattle side, I read an article this morning saying that Bion Environmental Technology has announced a collaboration with the University of Nebraska at Lincoln to build an integrated beef facility. This facility will be both a working feedlot as well as a test center for their technologies to show producers what their technologies work like in a commercial setting. Sounds like this is going to be a really state-of-the-art facility that will have a lot of research and tests coming out of it.
1: That's fun to hear. One of my favorite podcasts is the Future of Ag podcast and Tim Hammerich had done a story on seaweed technology to obviously help with the methane emissions that cattle produce, you know, focusing on dairies to begin with because a lot of those involve the state-of-art technology and it's nice to see that there's continuing to progress in research farms as such at scale to show that producers can adopt the latest technology in a cost-effective fashion. But Cassidy, Texas, where you're from, has uh, potentially set precedents for the rest of the country when in, in relation to eminent domain cases. So there's been a victory uh, for Texas landowners about how landowners can change the values of condemned property. So the biggest basis to try and summarize this whole article is historically the value is determined upon what is offered in an eminent domain or when you talk about a condemnation case by the company that is taking over. They are not supposed to be able to express a windfall and the value is supposed to be determined to be fair and reasonable at the time the property is taken possession of. So uh, we're talking a lot about this on pipelines, roads, and those types of products, but uh, this case here was closely followed by DTN. So it was the Texas Supreme Court's opinion of the Havlanka versus HCS Pipeline Pipeline Partnership, and they're calling it a huge victory for landowners because it shifts the advantage away from the pipeline company to the landowner in the port of negotiation. So the whole basis for this is the offer for this segment with this one landowner was offered at $23,000, but the landowner valued the future value of this easement at about 3.3 million to the pipeline company. So uh, here the windfall came to where the landowner should know, should not receive a windfall for private condemner and the condemner must pay a fair price for the value of the land taken. But the evidence here states that recent fair market sales can now be used in the securing of easements and value. So with the run-up in land prices, we no longer have to refer back to only easement examples in the past. We can now use current land sales as a barometer for a establishing that value. So a big land owner victory there to get more. Uh, I'm gonna, They're not necessarily comparable, but at least some more comparable values for what land is worth when it comes to a case where your farm might be involved in eminent domain or condemnation.
2: Well, Tanner, I'm not going to pretend that I understood hardly any of that, but I am excited to hear that Texas is doing some good for landowners and that my home state is having a win. On a more fun and less confusing note, I read an article this morning that was kind of like memoir of an old man. He was uh, interviewed by AgWeb, and he said that in his younger years, he became a cottonmouth farmer, so basically, he took on the crazy task of farming cottonmouth snakes and harvesting their venom to monopolize the venom market and made a lot of money doing it. And now he's an old man just kind of sharing his stories. And it's a really cute and cool story to read. It's by Chris Bennett, and it's on AgWeb.
1: That is interesting. We, we have a little spot here that you wouldn't even know if you drive by in central Iowa to where uh, a company is using the venom from snakes to make equine vaccines to uh, set, you know, basically prepare for riding horses through, you know, cattle ranches or trail riding or whichever they're used for to protect them from snake bites. So um, I'm sure this gentleman played a big role in just learning how you can harvest venom. Uh, I sure don't envy his job. I'm not a snake guy myself, so uh, more power to him. And I'm going to have to look that up to learn more about how he went about doing everything. But the last piece that I have for today involves a really small creature, but a really long story. So after 12 years of research, the parasitic wasp that controls a highly destructive fruit fly will be released by Oregon State University in June. So Von Walton, the extension entomologist and professor of the College of Ag Sciences has now received a permit to release the wasp, a process that took over 12 years since application to decision. They now have the permit and Walton's lab, which is part of the OSU Ag Experimental Station, is now gonna begin raising enough wasps to make a dent in the spotted wing Drosophila population in Oregon. So this is an in, that is an invasive insect, the spotted wing Drosophila, from Southeast Asia And it came to Oregon in 2009 and is now one of the major pests for soft fruit crops like cherries, peaches, figs, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, and even wine grapes. The damage from this insect has now reached approximately $500 million a year, especially for the blueberry farmers because of its affinity for blueberries. So Oregon is the ninth most value in Oregon, blueberries are the ninth most valuable crop at $120 million annually. And managing this spotted wing Drosophila in that blueberry industry alone is going to save the growers $100 million nationwide. So a huge win again for Professor Walton. I applaud him for sticking with it. And my only concern to add a personal touch to this is we don't want this tiny wasp to become invasive. So hopefully the solution to one problem doesn't become a new problem down the road.
2: Yes, that's always exciting to see what scientists are doing to help farmers. And on the entomology front, there was a honeybee expert named Dr. Eric Carnes-Messon And he worked for UC Davis and did a lot of work in the honeybee and entomology sector. And he died about three days ago from liver cancer. His colleagues at UC Davis were quoted saying that the impact of his work stretched far beyond California and he will be dearly missed.
1: Absolutely. It's too sad to hear, but it's always nice to have people recognized for the hard work that they've done. So kicking into the grains, Cassidy, for the end of our segment today, just real quick, we told you about the planting progress report Soybeans were hanging in there up one to two in the contracts July through November cents as we opened this morning. Corn was up four to six cents again from the July to Dec contract as those grains looked there. Mixed down for wheat uh, anywhere from two to four cents in the red as the wheat contracts came about. Cattle and lean hogs and feeder cattle all down on the day for the open Uh, Off three quarters of a cent for live cattle, down a penny nine for feeder cattle and lean hogs. Based upon export news, I would assume Cassidy is down just a dollar and three quarters. So uh, unfortunate news there for some producers in the markets. But overall, I think another great day for Ag News.
2: Yes, sir. And let's jump into a really exciting interview with Jake Felser from Freight Farms. Good morning, listeners. We're really excited to introduce Jake Belser of Freight Farms. He is the CTO and has a lot to share with us on this Tech Tuesday segment. So Jake, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into agriculture? Good morning, listeners. We're really excited to introduce Jake Belser of Freight Farms. He is the CTO and has a lot to share with us on this Tech Tuesday segment. So Jake, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into agriculture?
0: Absolutely. So, my background is uh, actually as a mechanical engineer originally. And, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of my career working on robots and um, fast food and various other kinds of technology. But I really got excited about agriculture a few years ago, about five years ago, um, when I just became a lot more conscious about our impact on the planet and the food system and the food system's impact on the planet. So, um, you know, I became vegetarian and um, did a lot of research and ended up at an ed company uh, as a result.
1: And what company are you at?
0: I am at a company called Freight Farms. Uh, and what we do, we've been around for about 10 years. Uh, and we build turnkey hydroponic farms inside of shipping containers. Um, we've been through about 10 generations of farm. And our current generation of farm is called the Greenery S. Uh, it packs about three to five acres of sort of land equivalent into a shipping container, and we grow our produce with 99% less water than traditional agriculture, 98% less land than traditional agriculture,
1: no chemicals
0: whatsoever, and almost no
1: food miles. So you said this is in a shipping container. So I've, I've got in my mind the visual of the containers that are coming on a cargo ship across the sea. Is that, is that what you're describing? That is exactly what I'm
0: describing. Yeah, we um, actually leverage shipping containers that are made custom for us uh, by the leading container manufacturer in the world uh, in China. And they get shipped uh, across the ocean. They're one trippers. So we pack them with either our own goods or other people's goods, uh, send them across the ocean on a container ship. So they're seaworthy and certified for being stacked uh, in the ocean on a ship we build the farm itself in New England. And then the the really special part about what we do is we ship the farm, not the food. So after our after the farm leaves our manufacturing facility, it gets shipped out to wherever that farmer is anywhere in the world. And we've got farms in 35 countries and 49 states at this point.
2: That's very exciting, Jake. And uh, when y'all first started, where did you start? What What was your process to get this going, and what gave you this idea, and where are y'all planning to go with this in the future?
0: So the company first started uh, looking actually at at rooftop gardens in cities, Uh, and so the founders were looking at rooftop gardens uh, as a means of reducing food miles, and the conclusion from looking at that was that rooftop gardens sound like a really good idea, but they're actually quite difficult to build. They're very expensive. It's really hard to get to that real estate. It's hard to permit. It's hard to design. And so the goal of the company from day one has been to make farming more accessible and make fresh food more accessible to everyone. And they settled on a shipping container because a shipping container is already the standard unit throughout the world, right? It's very easy to move the farm around and it's very easy to build in. It's designed to be extremely resilient. It's designed to, to be insulated, um, um, withstand the elements really well. So a lot of our farms are in very extreme environments, making food accessible to people who might not otherwise have access.
1: So when I think about the conversations I've had with hydroponic farms and indoor grow companies, there's a need for electricity and water. So when you're providing these shipping containers, is that a prerequisite? of where they can be located. is. Do you still need energy sources to connect to your container? Absolutely.
0: Yes, you do. Um, you need electricity, you need water, and we like for you to have internet, although you don't need internet. Um, you can run fully offline, but there's some software features that you can't take full advantage of if you're offline. So those three utilities are things we look for. That doesn't mean you can't be really remote, though. We've got plenty of farms that run on alternative... Uh, energy sources that are off the grid, we have farms that run on satellite internet or remote cell service or radio internet. Um, And the water needs are very, very minimal relative to traditional agriculture. So for your three to five acre equivalent, you only need about five gallons a day. Uh, And so that's pretty achievable even in very water scarce regions, um, such as islands or Middle East, for instance.
2: And is this something, um, I know it's an entire shipping container no matter who you are, but is this something that you can do on a small scale, kind of like a farmer's market kind of thing, or is this something only commercial operators would benefit from
0: so our primary product today, the Greenery S, yes, is um, it's a pretty substantial output, right? It's about a thousand heads of lettuce a week. And so it is definitely geared towards um, I would say the smaller end of commercial growing, you know, I, I will get, I'll talk to people and they'll say, Oh, I want one for my backyard. It's like, well, um, unless you're going to make that into a business, you're not going to eat a thousand heads of lettuce a week. And your neighbors probably won't either. Um, you definitely, you know, need to be looking at it as, um, something you're really going to invest in. Now, one of the things that, you know, touch back on that we as a company are really focused on is making agriculture more accessible to everyone. And part of that, uh, and our next product push, and I I can't say too much about it yet, um, will be to make the farm smaller uh, and more accessible. So that's
1: something we're actively working on now. That's cool to try and keep your finger on the pulse of what the market is requesting, because I could see, a lot of households wanting to switch now with the, the food insecurities that we might be feeling some pressure of, maybe not locally here in Iowa, but what we've been hearing worldwide to where they can be self-sustaining. We've, we've certainly seen a lot of, of chicken coops where people want to raise their own chickens and their own eggs uh, along the sides of, of managing their own property. But I'm curious, so how many different crops can be grown in your containers? Yeah, that's a great question. Um,
0: lots is the answer. So I think we've tried about 500 different varieties. Uh, and I, I think we should differentiate between can be grown and can be grown profitably because those are two slightly different questions. Um, so in terms of what we see, you know, our most profitable growers growing, it's mostly in the category of uh, leafy greens and herbs. So you know, lettuces, arugulas, basils, oreganos, you know, um, those types of plants do really, really well. They're very space efficient. So they take full advantage of the farm. We'll often intercrop with, um, let's say, lettuces and radishes because they work really well together right next to each other, um, just space wise. We also see farmers who grow what we sort of would call the, the high value crops. So you know, more specialized flowers or cannabis. Um, We have folks experimenting like saffron. So there's there's a lot of different things out there that we are growing. Um, We're also always experimenting and trying crazy new crops. Um, We've got some pineapple sage in the farm right now, which we're really excited about. Uh, I don't know that we have anyone growing it out in the field yet, but uh, just one of those things that we can experiment with because we can control the environment really precisely.
2: And Jake, if one of our listeners wants to get into this and wants to start their own freight farm, what exactly do they need to do that? And what steps do they need to take to do so?
0: Absolutely. Uh, So really, they should just contact us. Um, Go to our website, freightfarms.com. We've got a business planning tool that helps you sort of understand what the output of the farm would be and what the inputs to the farm are, how much labor, how much How many seeds you need, um, all those inputs that you have to plan and what your business could look like. Uh, and then get in touch with our sales team. They do case studies all the time. We often help people with their marketing and getting off the ground. Um, and we produce, you know, hundreds of farms a year. So we've got um, plenty of capacity to, to talk to new growers. We'd be very excited to talk to you.
1: Jake, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Agnes Daily podcast today. And I had never heard of pineapple sage, but it almost sounds like a, a new cocktail flavor that could be coming <laughs> near you. So, yes, thank you so much for your time in hanging out with us and uh, the best of luck to your business in the future.
0: Thank you. I uh, appreciate you having me on.
1: Well, that was an entertaining Tech Tuesday interview. And if it says anything about me, now I can't stop thinking of what a pineapple sage cocktail would taste like.
2: (laughs) I'm excited to try one too. Maybe we'll get Jake to mail us some for a thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, I think that would be a lot of fun. But listeners, we appreciate you hanging in with us. Don't forget to check us out on our social media platforms. And as always, we will be back with you again tomorrow. But Cassidy, for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go?
2: Let's let them go.